Welcome to Hot Politics. I'm David Mackay, Deputy Managing Editor of Canada's National Observer, and I must confess, a political junkie. I've been covering politics up close for more than 25 years, and I've seen politics change. The tone, the rejection of collaboration across party lines, the refusal to cooperate on public policies that help Canadians day to day. In Hot Politics, I'll be examining who has the best ideas on important issues, whether politicians are helping or hindering movement on them. For example, how can we wrestle disinformation to the ground or looking beyond doom and gloom on the big environmental problems? So I hope you'll join me twice a month, every other Tuesday, for challenging discussions about issues you care about. Today in our first episode, we're going to an international meeting on climate change. Not just a talk, talk, talk meeting, but one that is supposed to call out those nations who are falling down on their promises to provide money to help poor nations adapt to a changing climate. Another year, another conference of the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. That's a mouthful. You could see why they call it COP for short. This meeting was held in a fancy resort area in Egypt, Sharm el-Sheikh. And like other COP meetings, there were urgent calls to action. Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, opened the meeting with this reality check. This UN climate conference is a reminder that the answer is in our hands. And the clock is ticking. We are in the fight of our lives, and we are losing. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. And tough questions from leaders of global South countries hit hard by the climate crisis, like Mia Motley of Barbados. The oil and gas companies and those who facilitate them need to be brought into a special convocation between now and COP28. How do companies make $200 billion in profits in the last three months and not expect to contribute at least 10 cents in every dollar of profit. And angry talk from former U.S. Vice President Al Gore. We are all here today because we continue to use the thin blue shell of atmosphere surrounding our planet as an open sewer. Al Gore made it clear that leaving fossil fuels for sustainability is good rather than bad news. We are now in the early stages of a sustainability revolution that has the magnitude of the industrial revolution and the speed of the digital revolution. If we invest in it and stop subsidizing the culture of death, we can save ourselves. And the calls to move faster couldn't be more urgent. After a year of climate-related flooding, hurricanes, and record-breaking extreme heat. But let me remind you, COP has been around for 30 years. 30 years of trying and failing to get ahead of climate change. National Observer reporter John Woodside was in Egypt for COP27, and he joins me now. Hi, John. Hey, David. How are you doing? 
I'm good, thanks. So those were quite the opening comments. Clearly, the sense that change is far too slow. So how slow has the change been and, and what was accomplished? Uh, well, this was a really a, I think a lot of people are seeing this as a bittersweet process. Obviously, COPs have been going on for so many years now and emissions keep going up globally. Uh, some countries are bending the curve, others aren't, but it is not happening kind of rapidly enough. So this year, there were two really big things on the agenda. What people consider to be the litmus test of whether this was going to be a success or not was uh, was the creation of a loss and damage fund. Um, this is a big, essentially climate reparations, a pool of money that uh, rich countries would be paying to poorer countries to help them deal with the climate impacts of climate change, or the, 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 the damages of, of climate change, I should say. And the other sort of key point, the, the, the other big thing that people were looking for in this was really strong language around bringing down emissions. I mean, this is, after all, what we're all here for. And uh, I think we can really see this as, you know, as two sides of the same coin. The more you can bring down emissions, the less damage there's going to be. So those were kind of the two really big things on the agenda this year. I wanted to uh, dig into something else that you've been writing about and, and what was followed by other media outlets, and that's lobbyists. Uh, they made news uh, because of their presence there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, so fossil fuel lobbyists are, you know, they're, they're corrosive to the process. But this year, there were more fossil fuel lobbyists than ever before, a 25% increase by some estimates from last year. And what this is telling us is they are, they're on the defensive. They understand that there is action being done against them. They understand countries are recognizing that fossil fuels need to be phased out in order to bring temperatures down, global average temperatures down. They're on the defensive. And what that means, <laughs> what that means when you're a fossil fuel lobbyist, when you're feeling defensive, is you go on the offensive. You get in the space. And the way people describe it is it's like having tobacco lobbyists at a World Health Conference about you know, bringing down cancer rates or having arms dealers, you know, at a peace conference. They're here because they recognize that uh, if they're not there trying to push their influence, th then, you know, their whole line of business is going to be run out. So Canada's delegation had at least eight, eight who were registered, but we saw more. I was there and saw uh, someone from Suncor who was in the Canadian pavilion who was not actually on, on that list. So we know that there were more. It's unclear how many more, but what they did at this conference is, well, you know, they're in the rooms making deals uh, or, or trying to influence deals. But this year, Canada also hosted a, a pavilion for the first time. Uh, so this is a, a space where uh, events are put on kind of all throughout the, the two weeks. And the fossil fuel lobbyists with the Pathways Alliance, this is the oil sands companies, the six major oil sands companies, they put on an event in that space. That attracted tons of uh, attention. Having you know, the six biggest oil sands companies here together to say, well, here's actually how we're part of the solution. It's just not climate aligned. So they, they got a lot of heat for that at the conference but this year. But a lot of activists are calling for fossil fuel investments to end immediately. The banks have made it clear that's a non-starter. They have a fiduciary responsibility. They have a responsibility to investors. They are going to transition. It's better if they're at the table because they can influence how fossil fuel companies transition. So an immediate end to fossil fuel investment is, is not on the table. So with that in mind, were they able to kind of reiterate that point to, you know, those who are opposed to them? 
I think the, the thing that we're seeing right now in the oil and gas industry is they are trying to figure out what their place is in the energy transition. And what they're trying to do is go big on carbon capture technology, bring down their own emissions on the, on the production side of things. The problem here is that that only addresses you know, 20% of the emissions that actually come from, from this. So, you know, you, you can put, and, that, and that's assuming carbon capture works, uh, which it quite frankly hasn't to date, but you can't put carbon capture on, on the tailpipe of your car. So when you're burning gasoline, the emissions are still coming out. Carbon capture can't address that. And so the, the industry is trying, to, is trying to thread the needle. It's trying to find what its future is as oil demand falls, which it will. Every single credible forecast is showing that it will fall if we're going to hold on to our global temperature, uh, the, the Paris Agreement goal of 1.5 needs to fall immediately. Even without that, it's still projected to fall in every scenario. So they're trying to figure out what their, what their future looks like here. And the problem, uh, I think the problem a lot of people would see, and, and certainly the climate science backs this up, is that we can't have any more fossil fuel expansion. We have existing reserves. and In fact, most of the reserves that Canada has if we're going to hold on to a, a climate-safe future, uh, by which I mean the Paris Agreement's goal of holding global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we need to actually keep most of the oil we already know about in the ground. We, we can't extract all of it. So the reason I bring this up is because uh, a story that, uh, that we reported actually during the conference, uh, my colleague Chloe Logan and I, had to do with Newfoundland and Labrador's offshore oil industry awarding nearly $240 million worth of exploration licenses to companies like Exxon, BP, Equinor to explore the region further because they're trying to add new oil fields. So this is kind of the, the, the problem that we're seeing here is that there is going to be you know, a place, no one, no one is advocating for turning off the, you know, the tap tomorrow, but people are talking about how we need to transition. And it's hard to make that transition when the sector is still trying to grow and expand. And, and maybe the last thing I'd add on it to, just in the context of a, of a climate conference, is that trust has been really broken in, in this process. I, I can talk about you know, why for a number of reasons. A lot of it has to do with money and, and not rich countries not delivering. But the two things that vulnerable countries want to see in this trust-building process is rich countries putting up money that they promised and actually signaling that they get this, that, that they get fossil fuel use has to come down. And so when Canada comes into these negotiating rooms and says we want to be a constructive player, it's challenged when we haven't delivered the money that we said. And it it's, makes it tough to believe that we're serious on these things when we're also expanding production. And, and I heard this from all sorts of people. So having the fossil fuel lobbyists here, it, it makes it tough, makes it really tough in the process. We'll be talking to two people in a few minutes, John, who have been watching this conference very closely. But I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Catherine McKenna, Canada's former environment minister, infrastructure minister, who was in Trudeau's cabinet when they were making all those decisions about fossil fuels. She came out very hard with a report that was essentially criticizing her own former government. And I'm wondering how that report was received. McKenna's report, I think, was received very, very well. Some people on you know Twitter or whatever like to make the point that oh you know appointing McKenna to a, you know this a UN job where she gets to call out greenwashing, well she's also the minister who you know was there when Trans Mountain got built. So you know people love to make that point, but uh, virtually everyone I spoke to was incredibly positive of this report. 
And, and the reason why is because greenwashing is so rampant. It's so, it's so easy for companies to say, oh yeah, we're gonna be net zero by 2050. Trust us, you know, without actually proving it. And what this report did was it says very clearly what greenwashing is and isn't. And I, and I imagine the, the guests will speak to this, but what that really does, the, the really important thing is that it puts a UN kind of credibility on what is greenwashing and what isn't. And that's been a big missing piece. So everyone I spoke, I mean, everyone from civil society I spoke to was a big fan of it. It was received incredibly well. You know, the reporter in me, I'm trying to find, well, where's the weakness in this? I'm trying to find what's, where, where's the criticism? And the things I thought maybe people might pick up on, they said no. Like when you take this report all together, it is a really solid piece of work that people really hope will help steer companies, banks, cities, regions, anyone who's making a net zero promise. This makes it clear what's you know what's real and what's bullshit. It didn't really name names, uh, but it was clear that uh, the banks were a major, the elephant in the room, if I can call them that. And there were 10 recommendations. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed to me that a lot of the recommendations we've heard before, and fossil fuel investment, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm wondering if that's just not just more of the same. That's a good question. I mean, you're absolutely right that uh, banks are the elephant in the room here. Uh, they're the ones who've been making all sorts of bold claims. I mean, we, we really see this in Canada. You know, of the big five, RBC, TD, Scotiabank, CIBC, uh, and BMO, they've all made net zero promises. BMO has the, BMO's the only one that's actually set uh, an absolute emission reduction target. All the other banks are playing around with emission intensity, that allows you to actually increase the amount of uh, greenhouse gases that go to the atmosphere. So when you can make climate goals like that, or you can set climate targets like that, and you know it doesn't actually align with the science, that's a huge problem. And it's a huge problem because, uh, I, I mean, I, probably for obvious reasons, but I mean, let's just be really frank about it. Banks have the money. They're the ones that are gonna be financing the transition. So when they're saying, Oh yeah, we've got net zero goals, but in fact, uh, what they mean by that is uh, a sustainable, you know, a sustainability-linked bond can actually flow to Enbridge to help it build out pipelines and somehow call that sustainable. It, it's undermining the confidence that people uh, want to have in uh, sustainable investing. So it's really important for the banks to get on board with this. Otherwise, they're 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 blocking the kind of policies that are being set, and the, quite frankly, the kind of policies that. Uh, most Canadians, you know, based on the polling we see, we actually, actually want to have. You talk about banks. Were the banks there as lobbyists? When I was at the Canada Pavilion one day, I uh, managed to snap a little picture of uh, John Stackhouse and John Mitchell standing beside each other. And uh, John Mitchell is uh, the vice president of sustainability at Suncor. John Stackhouse uh, is, uh, is you know, senior vice president at RBC working in the CEO's office. Formerly, yeah, Globe and Mail reporter, uh, report on business, and you know, two of them talking together. And but like the important thing with uh, with Stackhouse, right, is when you look when you zoom in on the photo, you can see a pink stripe on his badge. That means he is part of the Canada delegation. He's not just here on his own. He was there as part of the Canadian delegation. So he is, <laughs> which I think really speaks to the influence banks have. Thanks for this, John, and don't go far. I'll come back to you in a few minutes after I talk with two people who've been watching COP27 very closely. 
The UN report targeted two areas, fossil fuel projects and the banks that finance them. Now, to talk about that, I'm joined by Keith Stewart. He's a senior energy strategist at Greenpeace Canada. And Richard Brooks, he's the director of climate finance program at Stand Earth. It's an environmental group that got its start in the 1990s working with Indigenous people to protect BC's old growth forests. Welcome to both of you to Hot Politics. Now, you're both in Toronto, uh, but I'm sure that you've been watching things from afar. And I'm interested in just your initial take on what you've seen so far. Um, Richard, why don't you start? It's pretty disappointing what we're hearing in terms of the actions that governments are taking. Uh, there is a preponderance of oil and gas lobbyists, over 600 of them are attending as part of different uh, national delegations, and clearly they're having an influence there. In, in my you know, end of the world, when we're looking at finance and what governments are doing in terms of stepping up to support the transition to renewables and climate solutions, and what non-state actors are doing, it's very disappointing there as well. There's not enough money going into the right things, and there's clearly too much money going into the fuels of the old, fossil fuels, and uh, we need to see more action on that front. What about you, Keith? I mean, I've been watching these things for decades. Uh, they go on, and the UN has usually kind of played this role of convener, bringing people together, trying to get the conversation going. Whereas now we actually have a secretary general who's basically breathing fire. He's not just saying, hey, you know, like, let's all get into the room and talk. He's saying, no, we need to do this now. Get with it. And, you know, when I watched that greenwashing report came up, come out, I was just like, wow, this is not something I would have previously expected from the UN. I think the Secretary General has basically said, we're not going to put up with this bullshit anymore. And he's not speaking in polite diplomatic terms. He's calling companies out. He's calling out bad actors. Now, Keith, you talked about that report. Of course, that was released by Canada's former environment minister, Catherine McKenna, and it made 10 recommendations, including setting net zero targets, phasing out fossil fuels, and increasing transparency and accountability. So given that other reports have made similar demands, I'm wondering what do you guys think about the significance of this report? Richard? I think it's I think it's very significant. I think it's significant for um, because it's the the group that issued that report was headed up by uh, our former environment minister Catherine McKenna. I think that has special significance for our Canadian financial institutions, who are amongst the worst actors in the world when it comes to taking climate action and trying to pull the wool over people's eyes in terms of misleading consumers and, and clients about what they're actually doing. Our Canadian banks, led by RBC, the Royal Bank of Canada, are amongst the largest fossil fuel financiers in the world. So I think having Ms. McKenna head up uh, that panel and issue that report has a special significance. If I could just add to that, I think there's an interesting kind of backstory here, which I see as kind of Shakespearean. I mean, the characters all know each other, like Catherine McKenna and Mark Carney are friends. Um, <laughs> they move in the same circles. And here you basically have McKenna blasting Carney's banking club. Mark Carney is the former governor of the Bank of Canada and the former governor of the Bank of England. So deep connections to banking. And some of the backstory here is Mark Carney was asked by the UN to bring together these banks to do all these good things on climate. They came, they joined, they said they were committed to net zero. The UN looked at what they were doing. They looked at reports that have come out saying, you know, the banks are all increasing funding to fossil fuels. And so the UN said, actually, they put out a report with a press release, which even said, you know, we are now making explicit what was always implicit, 
if you are committed to net zero, you have to phase down and out fossil fuels. You have to be committed to commit, uh, reducing your finance emissions in half by 2030. You have to stop lobbying against climate policies. And the banks, they started this whisper campaign. You know, oh, this is impossible. Oh, it's probably illegal. Um, we're thinking of dropping out. So it started with the U.S. banks sort of anonymously telling reporters, oh, we're thinking of dropping out. This, we, we can't deal with this. It's unreasonable. The Canadian banks, you know, right on cue came in saying the same thing to the Globe and Mail. Anonymously, of course, you know, publicly they wouldn't say anything. But, you know, behind the scenes, they're like, you know, spokespeople, oh, we're going to have to drop out of this thing. It just can't happen. And then just before COP, because everyone knew there was going to be a big announcement there, Mark Carney's club broke from the U.N. And they said, OK, we're, we're changing the rules. So, you know, we hope our members will live up to the U.N. criteria, but you don't have to. And so the banks kind of won that round. So the McKenna report is the, the punch back. And she's saying, no, actually, we're serious about this is what it means. And why I think this matters is because there's all sorts of arguments happening around, you know, what actually should qualify. Because previously it was just like people kind of made up their own rules. They could say they were, you know, good environmentally, but there was no, they didn't have to prove it. And the UN said, okay, here are some clear what they call red lines, you know, red lines against greenwashing. You have to, you know, at a minimum, you have to do this, this, and this. Well, what's going to be interesting is to see if investors start saying, okay, company, if you are going to say in your shareholder documents that you are committed to net zero, well, we now have these criteria science-based from this international body saying what that means. Are you lying to us as shareholders? Because everyone knows misleading the public is called advertising. Misleading your investors is called fraud. They want to you know, claim to be green. They don't want to have to do the work. And before they've always been able to slide through that gap, no problem. And I think this report makes that harder. And we're going to keep pushing for those regulations. Because the other thing that report said is, you know, these voluntary mechanisms, they're never going to work, which is a great admission. They're not going to work. They can be, you know, a way to get things started, start a conversation, but ultimately this has to be translated into regulation. And that now lands squarely in Christia Freeland's and Stephen Tilbo's lap. That's an interesting point, Keith. Here is um, Catherine McKenna, basically, calling out her colleagues and i'm wondering how how that might play into it what do you guys think uh, richard i think that it has special significance i think um there are some, there's definitely politics involved here um i think it was a, a bold recruitment process for the uh, u.n secretary general to assign her to this job it, it, it was it was clear from the beginning that uh, her mandate you know is to really push these voluntary initiatives to produce results and to set up the ground for governments around the world, including the Canadian government, to step in. It's, it's clear that the Canadian banks and other Canadian financial institutions are a big part of the problem and actually an outsized part of the problem. And we can't expect other jurisdictions to act if one of the biggest problem jurisdictions isn't acting itself. So that's why we need Freeland to step in. We need the fi our, our finance minister to step in. Because there's no way that us as a country will meet our goals to reduce our national emissions if our biggest financial institutions, including our biggest banks like the Royal Bank of Canada, are not on side with us. There's no way to do that. We just put out a report a couple of weeks ago in the lead up to COP about uh, the Royal Bank of Canada and what it's doing in terms of financing. Their financing of fossil fuel companies that are expanding infrastructure or building new uh, gas-fired power plants, uh, drilling more oil sands, has actually increased in 2022 over 2021 levels. This is why these voluntary initiatives are not working. I think the next report we'll see from this UN high-level experts group 
led by McKenna, uh, will hopefully push more for regulation. That's where the action is really going to hit the road and where we need to see the finance minister step in. Richard, I want to I, I pick up on that. Now, the banks have pushed back. I remember writing a piece uh, last year about the bank. You know, we asked for comment from the big six. They chose not to be interviewed and they issued statement. This was from the RBC. Our climate strategy will support efforts to define how we achieve our goals as we work in close partnership with our clients to meet their sustainability goals. Okay, that's RBC. Uh, this is from Scotiabank. As the world is still largely dependent on fossil fuels, we have begun the delicate work of helping clients in the energy business to transition to low carbon while also working to help drive down demand within certain sectors of the economy with high energy use. Okay, so essentially what they're saying, if we can translate that into everyday conversational language, is that we're still going to be doing what we're doing. We need a seat at the table and we need to be able to influence what fossil fuel companies are doing. So Keith, with that kind of response, are they basically thumbing their nose at you guys? So we put out a report at the end of August specifically about this, where we looked at the bank commitments and we compared them to the UN criteria that had come out. Fascinating to watch these guys, because I think it's I think it's partially a cultural thing. Like they just can't wrap their heads around they actually have to change their business model and not just their public relations. So they say, Oh, we want to help our clients transition. Well, none of their loans are actually like linked to doing that. None of them actually have a strategy for transitioning off of fossil fuels. They all actually have fossil fuel expansion plans. You know, what we have been saying and what the UN is actually saying now is stop funding new fossil fuels now. Like, just stop it. Don't keep expanding fossil fuels. And it's actually technically possible. We can still have, you know, homes that are warm. We can still move around. Um, it's going to take an unprecedented effort. Absolutely. Is it going to be easy? No. Some companies are going to take a hit if they don't get with the program. Yeah. And I think, you know, what we're beginning to see is obviously governments who are starting to scrutinize this. We have uh, financial regulators who are uh, putting out for comment various types of different regulations. And we're having law enforcement bodies who are stepping in and saying, mm -mm, this is not going to fly anymore. You know, a big announcement came out at the end of September where the Competition Bureau of Canada which is a federal law enforcement agency, announced that they were opening up an investigation into Royal Bank of Canada's misleading advertising practices, where they're saying on one hand that they are a climate leader, they're taking climate action, they put up nice pictures of solar panels and wind turbines on, on YouTube and their advertising circulars. But you know, below the surface, you look at the numbers, they're increasing financing to fossil fuel companies. And the Competition Bureau doesn't like to see that kind of thing. And so there's an investigation that has now been opened up. And that's a pretty novel action for them to take and has serious consequences. When the Competition Bureau investigated Keurig for uh, misleading consumers that their K-cups, those little coffee cup, uh, coffee pods are recyclable, they were fined $10 million as a result and took a serious blow in terms of their reputation. My hope is that the Competition Bureau will find a similar type of finding with the Royal Bank of Canada that, that they are in fact misleading consumers and uh, they have to change the way that they're doing business. Banks argue that it's fine for environmentalists to argue that we should be doing this, we should be getting out of fossil fuel financing and so on and so forth, but we have a responsibility to our investors, people who depend on us 
maximizing our profits. What about fiduciary responsibility? What about that argument? Keith? Well, what we're seeing absolutely in the last few years is because of this requirement that companies start reporting on climate risk. They actually have to start you know, reporting to their shareholders, okay, here's how we're at risk from climate change in terms of physical impact. You know, is the, the thing we bought going to go underwater? But also, is there a transition risk? Are we you know, buying a coal mine that's never going to be able to get the coal out because demand for coal is dropping? There's cl very clear material risk to their bottom line from these types of investments. And they need to have a strategy to mitigate that risk. And part of what the UN is saying is, okay, if you're claiming to be committed to net zero, that's actually best for the economy in the long term. Part of the, the, the redefinition of fiduciary duty is to sort of incorporate some of that longer term horizon thinking, because that actually is good for the bottom line, for the bank, for the companies involved, but most of all for you know us and everything else that lives on the planet. Richard? Well, I think Keith said it very well, and the outlook needs to be more expansive. You know, it needs to be longer term, and I think also we need to we need to call BS when BS is being spewed out by these financial institutions. It's clear that you can make money off of doing the right thing in climate solutions in renewables. If big pension funds like the New York City Pension Fund, which has two hundred fifty billion dollars under assets, can get out of fossil fuels and continue to make money and continue to pay their pensioners and be well-funded, then there's no reason why other pension funds couldn't do it and other financial institutions can take that same approach. It really is a all-hands-on-deck moment. We need every institution to be looking to the long-term, and we need decisions that are to, to get made now and actions taken now that are going to slow the curve of emissions and, and bring, start bringing emissions down. And when, it, when you look at the Canadian banks, for example, it's not like 75% of their business is in fossil fuels. You know, less than 10% of their business is, in, is working with energy companies. We're not talking about uh, a significant change to the way that they are uh, set up as a banking system. We're talking about managing uh, several dozen clients and shifting those client relationships over to companies who are really investing in uh, climate solutions and renewables. I want to end with a pointed question for both of you. I'm just wondering, at this point, have you guys failed to get your message across? Are you failing? Keith, you're smiling. You're smiling. <laughs> <laughs> I, I teach a course at U of T, and I often sort of half-jokingly tell my students, look, I have you know worked the last two and a half decades of my life focused entirely on climate change, so I know a lot about failure. We have failed in all sorts of ways. But there is a shift happening, and we have a climate movement now, which we did not have 10 years ago. We're still, I think, lose more than we win. We're winning more than we used to. And it's now just a, a race to try and win fast enough. And that's the thing that kind of terrifies me when I get up each morning, is we're going to get some victories along the way. We are seeing some progress. It still isn't nearly fast enough. This, I, this is where I kind of want to channel Antonio Guterres, like the Secretary General of the United Nations, because... When watching him, I just feel like this is a man who realized, you know, we are failing and he's not going to go down, you know, go quietly into that dark night. We are getting dangerously close to the point of no return. And to avoid that dire fate, all G20 countries must accelerate their transition now in this decade. We need all hands on deck for faster, bolder climate action. A window of opportunity remains open 
but only a narrow shaft of light remains. The global climate fight will be won or lost in this crucial decade on our watch. I think that's, we need more people doing that right across all walks of life. Um, you know, contacting your politicians, contacting your money managers, but also people within those businesses saying, okay, you know, enough of the bullshit. Let's get serious and let's do what is necessary, not what is not inconvenient. Richard? I remain hopeful, but I think the fact that these net zero alliances have uh, popped up in the last couple of years is a response to the power that we are wielding as a movement. Clearly, the net zero clubs are not working. So in response to that, we've got the UN uh, stepping in and saying, here are the things you need to do. We have mandate letters that have been issued to our finance minister and our environment minister saying you need to regulate banks and other institutions into uh, to reach net zero. That would not have been possible three, four years ago. You know, we need to put our pedal up to the metal maximum, and we can't be stepping on the brake at the same time. And when you're putting a dollar into or a billion dollars or $10 billion into fossil fuels, particularly expansion of fossil fuels, you're hitting the brake. And we need to take that foot off the brake, put two feet down on the other pedal, move full steam ahead. Okay, lots of uh, very colorful analogies there. I want to thank both of you for a fascinating conversation. I was joined by Keith Stewart. He's a senior energy strategist at Greenpeace Canada. And of course, Richard Brooks, who's the director of climate finance program at Stand Earth. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much. National Observer reporter John Woodside joins me again. John, this thing went late. You basically didn't get a whole lot of sleep trying to keep track of all of the last minute negotiations. So bring us up to date. <laughs> it went late. It was, it really seemed like it was going to be uh, one of the tensest cops ever. Uh, speaking to veterans of this, people who've been going to these for years were saying this is maybe the worst organized conference yet. And because of that, it meant countries were getting, you know, the text of different agreements late. It was giving them a really hard time to, to weigh in on things. Delegations were starting to fly out, you know, around midnight, they finally started getting into it. They, uh, and by, you know, 4 a.m. or something like that, they actually managed to, to get this through. Here's the big takeaway. It was historic. Everyone thought this was going to be an intense fight, one of the, one of the biggest battles, and it certainly was, but countries passed a historic loss and damage fund. What this means, and basically there's three important conversations in, in the world of climate finance. Mitigation, which is about bringing, uh, bringing global emissions down. So, you know, renewable energy, solar panels, wind turbines, that kind of thing. Uh, adaptation money, so building seawalls, nature-based solutions, things that are gonna help us, you know, uh, adapt basically, you know, as it sounds like to the damage we've already locked in. But then loss and damage. This refers to compensating countries for floods that are gonna destroy them, like, like what Pakistan just experienced fires uh, that you know raise villages, uh, droughts that have lead to crop failure for countries that depend on crop like crop exports. This is sig very significant. It even refers to things like uh, sea level rise and, and really slow uh, damages like that. And this has always been such a challenging, such a challenging uh, conversation to have because rich countries, particularly the, the United States, uh, do not want to be held liable in any way for damages even though they're you know, the big historic emitter. For the first time ever this year, a loss in damage was on the agenda. This is 
very very significant and it took uh it took a lot of work and the the historic thing here is that it was created and so what what that means is over the next year country uh, delegates will be meeting to hash this out but the idea is they want to have it launched by next year and actually start delivering cash to to countries that need it they don't have that yet they, there's no number on it yet and uh, i think uh, you know that's good instinct because that's where the fight is going to be so how much money are we talking about there are estimates i mean there's estimates that by 2030 i mean we're going to be talking about trillions of dollars of 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 money that's going to need to be provided to health countries. So very, very significant. The issue, among a number of issues, is that to get the Paris Agreement signed, rich countries promised uh, poor countries that they would make $100 billion worth of finance available by 2020. They broke that promise. Only about $83 billion was delivered, and a lot of it is loans that you know are going to have to get paid back. So the, the true value of that money is actually a fair bit less. But that money was only for mitigation adaptation, those other two funds I, I mentioned a moment ago. What's new about the loss and damage fund is that it is going to be additional money. So this isn't going to be reallocated out of that figure or whatever the new figure is going to be. It's going to be its own specific fund. That said, the details are going to get, have to be worked out of how much money are we talking about, who's going to be paying for it, and, and critically, how are we going to get this money actually flowing? Because a lot of countries, you know, they don't want to be, they're not going to be putting up trillions of dollars to give away to other countries. Uh, that's that's kind of where the United States is on a lot of this. They're going to have to figure this out. Seems like they're going to be trying to figure out how do we get the private sector involved. I mean, uh, you show me the company that just wants to give money to, uh, you know, to someone to, to compensate them for damages without expecting anything in return. So this is going to be a huge fight over the next year. Uh, a lot of, I mean, it's being celebrated as a win because it's being talked about for decades. It's been something that small island Pacific states and developing countries, I should say, have been pushing for. But the devil's always in the details, right? And I think that's really going to be the, the issue we have to see play out. So that's a big problem, isn't it, if there's no dollar figure? You know, when, I, when earlier when I said, you know, how uh, the devil's going to be in the details about how do we actually figure out where this money is coming from, you show me the private company that's going to just voluntarily do this. Well, one of the things in this loss and damage agreement is going to be exploring what they're calling innovative sources of funding. That's an open question. What does innovative mean? There's a lot of weasel words that get worked into into UN language like this. That could refer to a few really interesting things. I mean, that can refer to debt forgiveness for a lot of countries uh, that, that suffer a high debt burden. But it could also refer to uh, Mia Motley's uh, idea around uh, windfall taxes on fossil fuel companies. They're, they're currently enjoying record profits right now, hauling in billions of dollars a quarter. So there's suggestions out there, I mean, put a 10% windfall tax on them, or, or whatever the number may be, and redirect those profits into a loss and damage fund. Basically, I mean, quite frankly, it's, it's, uh, it's making the polluter pays principle, which is an idea in international law, and I, it's in Canadian law too, it's actually making it real. You know, it's actually saying, well, you're the one that's causing the problem. And as we transition out of this, we're going to have to take some of your excess profits and give it to give it to the victims, give it to the ones who are actually suffering. If, if I can bring that back to the Canadian context, you and I know the finance minister, Christopher Freeland, had an economic update, a fiscal update, where the whole idea of this windfall tax was rejected. So how does that play out politically? 
Uh, that's a great question. I mean, we're going to have to see where the leverage is in the political system here. Obviously, the fossil fuel companies don't want to have to pay a windfall tax. They're, they've turned into cash machines right now for their shareholders. Quite frankly, then we're looking at the banks. Banks are major shareholders of the fossil fuel companies who have tremendous influence uh, among, uh, among government. You know, like it, it's you know, early throughout this year, I mean, before the COP stuff, we've been doing a lot of uh, reporting on the financial sector and how it intersects with climate change and, and federal policy on this. And I mean, kind of the idea here is, well, why are the liberals, you know, with almost no support politically in Alberta, why, why do they seem to support this industry so much? And the, the link is Bay Street. The, the link is the financial sector that is deeply invested in this and doesn't want to see those investments go sideways. So yeah, when you start talking about a windfall tax, very politically difficult to get through, given the base of support that the, the government has here. That said, if they're feeling vulnerable on something, it's, it's a carrot that you can start to, to wave out there eventually, right? It's, it's a promising thing that a lot of people might respond to, because uh, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, this isn't a partisan comment, we all have feelings of a sense of justice in us or a sense of fairness. And when some are making out like bandits during a crisis, I think people respond to that. Uh, I think we even saw this during the pandemic when, when some corporations were just raking in money. A lot of people were going, well, hey, I thought we were supposed to be sacrificing for the greater good here. What do you mean that you're making billions? Loss and damage, that was the good news. What about the bad news? The, the bad news is that fossil fuels weren't tackled directly. Fossil fuels are the main driver of climate change. We've been doing these climate conferences for 30 years, and you know the first time fossil fuels got mentioned was last year in Glasgow. Even in the Paris Agreement, fossil fuels aren't mentioned. The expectation in these climate conferences is that you increase ambition each year. You, you, you take it further. So if last year we were going to say we should phase down coal, well, then maybe this year we should say, well, what about phasing down oil? Or what about phasing down gas? These are all fossil fuels that are contributing. So why not those? It wasn't tackled, it wasn't tackled directly. The, the real concern that people had was that it was going to, we were going to backslide from Glasgow, uh, that we were somehow going to get weaker language in here because of the main blocking countries, the OPEC countries really, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and, uh, and Iran were the three big ones. They didn't want to see any language around that. They wanted to strip out any reference to fossil fuels, any reference to you know, holding to 1.5. It is uh, really difficult in that kind of situation. We didn't get progress. Listen, John, this has been f a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you very, very much for joining us. I know you worked very hard at uh, the conference producing great stories. Safe trip back from Egypt. Thank you. I appreciate it a lot. And uh, thanks for having me on. This was great. Our politics is made possible by listeners like you. If you supported the podcast with a donation, thank you. If you haven't, please donate what you're able. Five, ten, as a one-time or monthly gift, every little bit will keep us producing more episodes. Please donate at nationalobserver.com. Hot Politics is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer is Zara Kozama. Executive Editor of Canada's National Observer is Karen Pugliese. Our publisher is Linda Solomon-Wood. I'm David Mackay. Next Tuesday is Maxed Out with columnist Max Fawcett. See you in two weeks.